This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a U.S. American and mixed race? In this episode, Christian shares what it was like growing up in different states in the U.S. and how these experiences shaped him and prepared him for life. His story is about colorism in the U.S., about racism in West Point, the oldest military academy in the U.S., about the intersection of race and nationality when being abroad, and the role of everyone, particularly those in positions of privilege, in breaking the silence around racism. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Christian. When you look at my background, there is what, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois calls that double consciousness, that external view or the perception of how others view you externally versus the way you see yourself internally. And so let's start with external. Externally, you know, we look at, and I'm jumping in with racial background immediately. I'm not even talking about like professional or academic background yet. But you know, racial background, I've been seen as Black, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Mexican, Brazilian, Thai, Mongolian, Filipino, Egyptian, (laughs) you know, you name it, like, people don't know really what I am. But if you're looking at it from internally and then from a point of genealogy and looking at my family i am given that i am from the united states i was born in new jersey i am racially black but i consider myself ethnically like completely mixed so i have heritage from india like in india not Native American, but also I do have Native American heritage as well, but just making that distinction. Um, Portuguese, Spanish, Irish, English, Czechoslovakian. Um, I have family that had come from Jamaica to the U.S., Puerto Rico, the Azores Islands to the U.S. And then, of course, there's that African heritage from both sides of my family that you don't really know because a lot of it is lost because of the history of slavery and chattel slavery. Now, going back to the external side as well, the US government, every time, every time I have to get a student visa reminds me because I got to do that, that background check. The US government sees me as race black, skin tone medium. So, you know, according to the US government, I'm just that light skinned black dude, which Also, you know, when we start looking at it from that racial aspect, gets into that element of colorism, which maybe we'll we'll touch on later. So that getting into my background racially is, is who I am from an internal view. Christian's father was an American football coach at the college level. For this reason, between the ages of zero and 18, he moved on average of every year and a half. Starting in New Jersey, where he was born, he moved to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, Oberlin, Ohio, Dover, Delaware, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Morgantown, West Virginia, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, 
and Athens, Georgia. He says that with each move, he lived in, quote-unquote, more traditionally segregated areas. He shares some of his childhood memories and reflections on them. In Lewisburg as well, I don't remember the specific case, but my dad always brought it up where this woman, we were at a McDonald's, and I was like kind of, you know, running around and stuff, being a three-year-old, and she starts yelling at me using the N-word, like, someone needs to get this N in line, like, blah, blah, blah. And my dad, of course, like, my dad being, my dad yelled and got in an argument with the woman, but he told me, like, later on that night, he cried because he realized what I'll have to deal with. And, you know, I want to pause there and just say, going back to the FBI, the way they view me, I'm light-skinned. So if you can imagine, like, at three years old, I'm getting treated like that because I've got curly hair and, and black facial features, but light-skinned. The treatment for those who are of a darker complexion is much worse. And so, and keep that in mind, there is this element, like I said, I brought it up earlier, like this element of colorism that you always become aware of. So, like, I'm four years old. And I was in New Jersey with my, my grandfather, my father's father. He takes me to a playground in East Orange, New Jersey, where my dad had grown up. And I'm, I'm the lightest skinned kid there. And I just like climb up the ladder and I want to go down the slide. And I, I get stopped at the top of the slide by these kids. And they're like, you can't go down because you're white. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm trying to comprehend this. I'm like, no, I'm not. And they're like, no, you're white. You can't go down. And then behind me, of course, like this line starts forming and the kids hear what's going on and they get in an argument about the fact I'm black. I can't go down. Like I'm on the playground with them. I'm one of them. So I could go down. So these kids are arguing back and forth. I just go down anyways. I see my opportunity. But, you know, that's something that's always stuck with me because here we are at this young age and we're, we're differentiating between the physical features in a way that it exemplifies the structural racism that ends up becoming encoded within us because of what we learn in certain environments. So, you know, just at, the, at those young ages, I ended up developing like this, this way to kind of like code switch as, as we say, and like walk in multiple worlds. Like, you know, we go into a black church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm a bit uncomfortable at first, but then I'm feeling at home with the music. And then I just become extroverted and start talking to people. But then we moved to Morgantown, West Virginia after that. And it's nothing but like white people from West Virginia. And there's nothing wrong with white people from West Virginia, but there it's similar to Switzerland. Like that's when you live in this bubble and you don't experience people of another background, there are these stereotypes or these things that you only pick up from media or from an outside world that creates a judgment. So yeah, just starting at younger ages, there's always this hyper-awareness and you're always, it, it's, it's a bit draining on your energy as well because you're always aware of how people perceive you and how you perceive yourself. But then you're having to kind of create some type of coherence and reciprocation between those two views so that everyone is kind of seeing who you want to be seen as and overcoming that. Christian shares one vivid memory from middle school that he remembers to this day. 
because I was in middle school in, in Morgantown, West Virginia. And there was this kid who just hated me, like blonde hair, blue eyed kid who just hated me because I wasn't white. And I mean, the, the, the longer the school year went on, the more he would try and say things to me. And so he was like proud that his grandfather had been a Nazi in Germany. And he ended up one day writing this letter to me and passing it like to me in class. And it was like something like saying he'd hoped I died and then signed it like death with his name. And of course, like that pissed me off. <laughs> and I, I internalized that anger, but it came out like I was writing this paper in that class. I don't even remember the class, but I just remember like I'm pressing the pencil against the paper so hard that like when I tear it out the notebook to turn it in, the teacher started crying because like she was like, I've never seen such anger. And of course, I had already been labeled like this problem child, not because of my grades, like I had great grades, but because I'm dealing with so much BS from like these other kids, especially this kid, that I'm just angry. Like I'm an angry kid because if you're having to put up with racist nonsense from kids every day, like it gets to you. So instead of really taking the time to articulate like the issue and really be on my side, this happened in the army too, actually, where I had an issue with another officer harassing me and I brought it up to my commander. And of course they just gaslight you and don't do anything about it. But in middle school, it wasn't just gaslighting. So this teacher, cause I, it was a private school, but at this church. So the principal is also like the pastor of the church. So this teacher goes and gets the pastor and they pull me out. And I remember this, it was like a movie scene. If a movie's ever made about my life, I'm totally including this. Cause I mean, they pull me out of this like double wide trailer where our classroom is. And I'm just there like on the little awning by the door and it's dark gray, like thunder and raining terribly. And this guy has his Bible like in, in one arm and the teacher like holds me like beh standing behind me, like holds my shoulders and he puts his hand on my forehead and starts praying that like demons come out of me and this darkness leaves and all that stuff. <laughs> like even telling you this, how absurd is this? But this is like, this is middle school. This is what people seriously like believed. And so they, they put me back in the classroom and I was stuck at that school for two years. And I remember like the teacher saw me again next year. The, that kid that wrote me the letter ended up getting pulled from the school. Cause I, I mean, I told my parents and I think my parents probably did some stuff behind the scenes in regards to speaking to his parents or even who knows pursuing legal action. I have no idea. I've never really asked my mom. But um yeah, I mean that was that was that was a huge, huge thing. After graduating high school, Christian went to West Point, one of the world's most prestigious military academies. He would spend four years of undergrad there, then serve five and a half years as an officer in the US Army, including two and a half years in the Middle East. He shares his experiences around issues related to racism there, including the intersection of race and nationality. 
the West Point, like you're completely indoctrinated in the military. I mean, it is the United States Military Academy. Their whole point of the first summer is to kind of break you down and build you back up. But there was still kind of like this rebellion in me. And I only realized it after as well, because I had a a mentor at West Point who was black, who kind of pointed out like a lot of the stuff I was doing with. He was like, Oh, your classmates are racist as shit. (laughs) And, and, And it was true. Like there were small things where people would try and get me in trouble or they wouldn't let me go like fight at the all army combatives tournament, even though I was like the captain of the jujitsu and combatives team there, they let some other guy fight and it didn't make any sense. And then you look at the dynamics of it and they're trying to really prop up, you know, their white cadets or, you know, those who adhere to this, this stereotype of patriotism and American exceptionalism. And then they're kind of putting me down. And it, it it actually, it happened to another West Pointer who I only met after I graduated, who was a phenomenal black athlete. He was a mixed martial arts fighter. And the army just kind of glanced over him to prop up these white athletes who weren't as talented, but they embodied what they saw as America. And then getting out, you know, being a 21 year old and you're a uh, a lieutenant in the military and you have a diverse group of people from the ages of 18 and and 44 and you have to bring them all together was was i mean it's a phenomenal example in (laughs) case study on inclusive leadership but what was even more fascinating is the fact that here you're having to to kind of be that rebel again to do what's right because when i became an officer that was still when the don't ask don't tell policy was in place. And so as an officer, you always have like an enlisted soldier who has a lot of experience working with you. So you're supposed to be able to pair their experience with your book knowledge and make great decisions for the unit. And here my first platoon sergeant was a black woman and she's lesbian. And, you know, she couldn't really talk about it. And so we had to really build trust so she could be her authentic self and feel comfortable in the workplace actually performing on a daily basis. And that made me so mad because here you have people just wanting to live life. And because of, of some general order, some some political standard, they, they aren't able to. And it didn't make any sense. So, you know, don't ask, don't tell happened. And, and a lot of soldiers I serve with are now able to be who they want to be. And you see, like, they're happier. They're, some have chosen to stay in the military. Some have gotten out. Um, but either way, they're able to have more agency over their lives. Now, my time across the Middle East was eye-opening as well, not just because I was seen as this racially ambiguous person, but just because it was the first time I really experienced discrimination, not necessarily based off of race, but based off of nationality, where I would go out sometimes and I didn't have a beard and my head was shaved and I was what like 20 kilos less than. So I was like, I looked like, because I was always training for, for Muay Thai fights or jujitsu competitions, so I was always keeping my weight down. And so I had a very different look in the face as well. And so all these people recognized me as Filipino. And so it was, it was kind of cool. I was like, yeah, Pinoy power. And, you know, we go into restaurants sometimes and it'd be cool because I get 
you know, some conversations and people called me Kuya, but more often than not, it was actually a negative because I'd go out with friends and I would be discriminated against whether I was in line, like at a bar. There was one time I was pushed aside by an Emirati guy and he blatantly just like pushes me out the way to get a drink at the bar. I, I was like, dude, come on, <laughs> like WTF. He goes, hey, man, I'm getting my drink. I go, who do you think you are, man? He goes, what do you mean? I go, and I had learned at that point, And I say, dude, I'm American. Because I know, like, that protects me. He goes, oh, my bad, man. I thought you were Filipino. Oh, man, let me buy you a drink. I was like, no, nah, man, I'm good. Oh, man, like his name was like Faisal or something. He's like, oh, man, let me let me invite you over to, to my house in Halifa City. Man, I, I, I'm so sorry. I was like, dude, you already you already exposed yourself. It's good. But then I'd go out to eat as well. And Filipinos then would think I'm Filipino. And so they would put me aside. They'd say like, oh, you need to wait in line, sir. And they'd allow like Emiratis to come sit in. Or like other Americans. And then I pull out my passport when I realized that's why they put me aside. Oh, cool. Y'all calm down. So sorry. And I'm like, no, no, that, that doesn't work. Like <laughs> you've exposed yourself there. Like I'm going to go eat someplace else and not give you any business. So you start looking at like discrimination. And of course, like there was an element uh, of racism, even among Emiratis, like the, the colorism, like darker emiratis were seen as like having african descent and so there were jokes made about them and of course the treatment of black people and black africans specifically was atrocious but what really ended up mattering was nationality more so than anything it was like this this nationalistic hierarchy where at the top you had like emiratis then you had like white europeans and americans and then it was like Australians and then Asians like from China. Because, you know, you have to you have to separate within Asia. It was like East Asians, like Chinese, Japanese, Koreans. And then you had like other Arabs. And then you had like what they call the TCN, like the third country nationals who just basically meant like your Indians, like your Bangladeshis, your Nepalese your Malaysians, and then Africans. And it was so terrible to see because you see the treatment of workers who are constructing these buildings. But then you also see the treatment of people who just were lied to, who, you know, I I talked to people who had PhDs, master's degrees, MBAs, and they get told they're coming to the UAE for you know, certain types of jobs like that match their professional profile. And then they end up getting stuck as a security guard or a waiter or a nanny or a janitor. And they're stuck. There was no way out of it. So you start seeing that. And it's not to say, you know, that every person who's stuck in the structure at the top is bad, but there's a privilege there they have to be aware of. I mean, in in most countries as well there's a privilege they have to be aware of and they have to use their own privilege to really overcome and fight this structure after leaving the army 
Christian studied and lived in different countries around the world, including Brazil, Colombia, and South Africa. He currently resides in the German-speaking part of Switzerland, Zurich, and is pursuing his PhD in St. Gallen. He says he experiences various manifestations of racism on a regular basis. He shares one instance from a train ride. It was just one of those things where I, I've seen people just work in the restaurant car or bring, you know, outside things on the restaurant car and nothing ever happened. So I just, you know, without thinking about it, like I just brought in like a coffee and get in a restaurant car and the hostess there comes up and says something in, in German or Swiss German. I, I had headphones in, so I don't know. So I take it out and I said, oh, I'm sorry. Can you say that in English? And then she goes, oh, you need to get out. You need to get out right now. I was like, excuse me. She's like, you can't have that in here. I go, ma'am, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Um, may I order something from your restaurant? And in my rational mind, that should have ended it right there. Like she brings me a menu. I order something and then instead she ignores me and walks away. And so I'm looking around and I'm the only non-white person. And I, I, I asked somebody at the time. I go, hey, it's cool if I'm here, right? Like, yeah, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. So she comes back to me. She goes, hey, I asked you to leave. You need to leave. I go, ma'am, I am trying to solve this. I would like to order something from your restaurant. She walks off. And this old white guy comes in from the first class car. And he goes, hey, man, you need to stop. I'm like, sir, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm trying to resolve this situation with this woman. Um, I would like to order something from her restaurant. He goes, you need to calm down. I go, sir, I am being calm right now. And of course, you know, talk about code switching. I've been in enough situations inside the military, outside the military, in personal life to know how to de-escalate. <laughs> and so I know I'm not raising my voice at all because if I do that, that's immediate escalation. In fact, I've been keeping it much lower than normal the whole time just to de-escalate. So this guy can't say anything to me. So he walks back and I'm just looking around at everyone and they're just watching. I'm like, uh, it's okay, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. This woman comes back a third time. I guess, if you don't leave right now, I'm going to get the conductor or call the police and we're going to have you removed from the train. I go, ma'am, I would like to order something from your restaurant. May I order something from your restaurant? And that was the point where I just see everybody. It was like a moment frozen in time. I see all these eyes just watching the situation. And she doesn't say anything. Like, she really, I, I'm just trying to order something. And she just uh, walks off and says she's going to go, you know, notify the conductor. I'm like, I can't understand this at all. So then I just grab my stuff and go sit in a second class car. I get to St. Gallen and this was this was the real kicker. Get to St. Gallen and I notice one of the guys from from the restaurant car. So I go up and I ask him as I came in, were there people who didn't order stuff from the restaurant sitting there? He goes, Yeah, yeah, why? I go, so there's no issue with people just because I had seen people on their laptops, you know, not ordering, just working. I was like, so you can say for certain that there were people who who didn't order anything from the restaurant sitting in the restaurant. It's like, yeah, I go, and you saw what happened to me. Yeah, I go, okay, that, that, I don't, I don't think that's normal, man. He goes, oh, she was probably just in a bad mood, man. I was like, ah, ah, 
that privilege, that privilege. Heard that, heard responses like that so many times before. So anyways, yeah, like that was, that was what happened on that train. And, you know, you go through, you go through the internal process of thinking about, okay, was that really discriminatory? And then you start asking friends and you tell the, the story and they're like, yeah, I mean, it should have stopped immediately when you asked to order something from the restaurant. Christian shares another experience that he goes through on a regular basis in Switzerland, which he wants to bring attention to. I preface it by saying, don't be afraid of black and brown men. <laughs> like, really, I mean, the, the amount of times, and we, we look at the 10th anniversary of Trayvon Martin's death this month. Like, he should have been 27 years old. And here's a boy who was demonized for wearing a hoodie, which had traditionally been something white athletes wore and they gave their girlfriends to wear as like this sign of, of coolness. And that's, I mean, when champions started the hoodie, that's how it became popularized, but don't want to digress too much, but I like wearing hoodies and the amount of times per week that I am on a street and Zerk, Zerk is safe. My neighborhood's safe. The amount of times I'm walking home and a woman will cross to the other side of the street is incredible. And you talk about that anger. I mean, it does. It makes you angry because you look at the Emmett Tills or the football players in Georgia that my brother and I knew who were accused of rape by white women and then thrown in jail. Like the, the white women crocodile tears and the white women fear being used to oppress Black men and women is too much. So, I mean, to to your audience, that's what I say. Don't be afraid of us. Don't be afraid of us. Talk to us. Ask us. Say say what's up. I'll give you a big smile and say what's up too. But even with that smile, it's what Robert Livingston calls the teddy bear effect. You know, I have to code switch. I have to be much friendlier than a white guy that would probably have a similar demeanor as I would has to be because of the imagery that has been used to construct this false idea that black and brown men are criminals, that they're super predators, that they're sexual predators, that they're rapists, that they're thieves, all, all this nonsense. So so that that would be the first thing I would say is, you know, because of those types of incidents, and you see, you can see when people look at you. I mean, I've been told I'm not as intimidating as I look. That's not a compliment. <laughs> That's not a compliment in any way, shape, or form. What it's telling me is that someone's biases and stereotypes about the way I look led into this idea that I was some scary figure. And people say, well, yeah, you do jujitsu or you, you weightlift. Who cares? There are people who go shooting on the weekends. Are you scared of people because they go hunting or shooting on the weekends? No. I mean, that scares me more than me doing jujitsu. You can shoot me from a mile away, depending on what type of scope and rifle you have. My jujitsu, I'd have to run up, <laughs> spend like, you know, six minutes running up to you. <laughs> like, it's so absurd. Against the background of his experiences, Christian has the following to say about what he thinks it takes to be anti-racist. I think so many people talk about it all the time that there is this complicity, there's this white silence. 
that occurs. And that's what allows young black people to be killed. That's what allows discrimination to occur. That's what allows me when I'm being racially profiled on an SBB train on the way to St. Gallen for a PhD course to feel the fear that I might die or be put in prison because there's white silence. I was being racially profiled and no one stood up for me. I just saw white eyes, just staring, watching, observing. And I mean, I've had other instances like that as well. That was my first time in Switzerland. But when you realize that all it would take is somebody else to stand up and that it doesn't take that much to stand up, you know that the problem can be solved. And so that is what I would conclude with in being anti-racist. Being anti-racist means speaking up against injustices when you see them, when you see injustices against people of an underrepresented group or a traditionally marginalized racial group. I know from a personal perspective, I've talked a lot about black people or people of African descent, but you know, regardless of where people are coming from, be it they're indigenous to the Americas or indigenous to Oceania, Australia, or indigenous to Asia. And we could have a whole episode on Asia as well and the nuances there. But at the end of the day, stand up, speak out. And those words, when you become comfortable speaking out, will segue into action because speech is an action. Writing is an action. And when you do those things, you'll start to see, well, if I write and I talk in a way that's supporting or fighting racism and it has that impact, what more can I do? And when you start realizing those actions that build off of those words, you join together with others and you realize you aren't really alone in this fight and that we can all ultimately change the world and make it a better place and eliminate the structures that have continued to oppress and hinder people. You can find articles, books, and videos Christian recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you next month on April 6th. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Christian for his time and energy in going down memory lane for us reliving for us some of his painful memories and sharing with us valuable, honest, and timely reflections on this issue.